Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this podcast episode, I'm talking with Andrew Shepard, who is the managing director at Transcend Fund, a venture capital firm investing in the future of games and digital entertainment. In this discussion with Andrew, we talk about his move from being an operator in gaming to becoming an investor. What has been hard about being an investor and what Andrew thinks will change and stay the same as new gaming platforms emerge. The dilemma at the heart of mobile gaming. Monetizing your great work while keeping gamers engaged and not distracted by intrusive ads. Well, our partners on this podcast have a very clever solution. AudioMob delivers in-game audio ads so that game developers can monetize their players without interrupting gameplay. Audio ads are better at retaining happy gamers than video ads and can actually work alongside video ads too. This is all the while having much higher CPMs than banner ads, up to 600% higher. AudioMob's Unity plugin is simple to set up. It can take just minutes, allowing complete privacy control, and you can even reward players for extra gratification. Simple, clever, and rewarding. Go to audiomob.com for details and to speak to the team. All right, we're recording. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joachim. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. This is going to be fun to talk about a lot of stuff. We've both been in gaming from early 2000s and seen a lot of stuff, different kind of platforms, new things. Now we're again seeing new things with Web3 and stuff. And it's going to be fun to talk about these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to dive in and trade experiences. Let's kick things off. Can you share your origin story and how you made your way into to eventually doing VC in gaming? You know, my arc is actually pretty long and jumps around a bit. So I'll try to I'll try to make it short. But I think it's characterized by me trying to learn what I wanted to do as an adult, like what what job I wanted to pursue as an adult. And you know, there was the path that my father wanted to be on, which was kind of very much the business professional, the investment banker, or the consultant. And then there was the reality that I was very passionate about games and couldn't imagine a better future than working in the business of games in some form or, or, or fashion. And what, what you kind of see with my arc is that, you know, I started off my dad's path and then every chance I got, I moved closer to gaming. Like as a consultant, I worked on the original Xbox launch. I did a global marketing strategy project for Blizzard on World of Warcraft six months after it launched. Both those efforts kind of opened my eyes to the to the industry and how fun it was to be a part of it, even albeit for a brief moment in time. And then I went into working at GameSpot, doing business development and strat planning. And I would say those three experiences specifically opened my eyes to the transformation that would become gaming as a service, digital distribution, subscriptions, free-to-play, synchronous gaming, all of these things were kind of threads that ultimately twined together to become what gaming is 
pretty much known for today. And over that arc of me moving from being a business guy to being someone inside the industry, now as an investor, I have done almost every job possible except art and programming. You know, I've done live ops, I've done game design, I've done general management, I've done product management, I've been CEO. But interestingly enough, my arc as an operator ended about three years ago. And that was because I realized that family was the thing that I wanted to make a priority next. And, and so my wife and I were trying to have a kid. We ultimately were fortunate enough to have a daughter. And that really was kind of the, the, the project that I was most excited about, if you will. And I was pulled out of the bench, pulled off the bench by my good friend, Shanti Burrell, who founded Transcend back in March 2020. And it he reached out to me to join as a partner at exactly the same time my wife was telling me to go back to work. <laughs> so it was perfectly oh. <laughs> timed. And, you know, the cool thing about that is, uh, you know, I found that the investing side of the business, you know, I had some early thoughts on what it would be like, but it's turned out to be much more fun and rewarding than I could have imagined, in part because I'm working with Shanti and, and the rest of the Transcend team. Uh, but it, it feels like a really nice segue from having, I would say, completed my my arc as an operator. Nice. Like, we're going to get more into your background and learnings there from being an operator, but maybe you could introduce Transcend Fund for the listeners. It's a very cool venture company. Thanks, Ben. That, that, that definitely means a lot coming from you. So Transcend, as I mentioned, you know, founded by Shanti Bergel back in March 2020. So we're a relatively young fund. You know, VCs talk about themselves in different ways. For us, we are an early stage venture capital firm focused on gaming and gaming adjacent investments. So what does that mean? That means that we are, like many of our peers in the space, we're not afraid to roll up our sleeves and invest in content. We also invest in tools and technology, oftentimes supporting gaming, but we're also comfortable doing media adjacent investments that aren't necessarily gaming. The fund is large and fun. It's 100 million assets under management divided into two funds. The second fund is is open. We're fundraising against it now. We'll push it to probably be 100 million in total. Really great momentum behind that. We've done 23 investments, which means we've done basically an investment a month for the last two years. Uh, some notable investments within the fund are that game company, uh, which was helmed by Jennifer Chen, who uh, I worked with back when I was at Electronic Arts back in the day. Even then, could tell that he would go on to do incredible things within the industry, and I believe he has. For me, that game company has showed us that gaming can truly be art. Another company is Gardens, which coincidentally is helmed with their three co-founders and an exceptional team there. One of the co-founders was on the original teams for Sky and Journey at that game company. Uh, so great continuity. And then perhaps an example of an investment outside gaming is Spatial, which is award-winning immersive audio company software service provider that just showcased a bunch of new reveals at South by Southwest and received a lot of accolades there. If I were to kind of step back and just ask, well, you know, how is Transcend different? You know, it's an interesting time for VC. You know, I, I kind of pride myself on being counter-cyclical, ideally in advance of other folks. Right now, venture is very competitive. There's so much capital out there flowing around. And we feel strongly that to be successful in venture, you have to be more than just an industry specialist. You have to be a that. You have to be a service. You have to be a partner to the founders that you're working with. So for us, the three differentiators are each of the managing directors of the fund were operators before they became investors. Shanti was a producer working on games that moved into corporate development. I talked about my arc. 
Our third partner, Brett Kraus, is currently the Chief Investment Officer at Fund Plus. He'll be migrating over full-time next quarter. Before that, he was president of JP Morgan China. Each of us has been in the trenches to varying degrees, building businesses and product, running product. We know how difficult it is to be a founder. We know how difficult it is to do something when you're just, you just have an idea in your mind to actually turn it into something real. And so I, I well, much to my surprise, that, that that seems to be unique amongst investors. It seems to be a, a differentiator. Founders come to us for that experience, that background, and that understanding. The second differentiator is we're audience first. We invest on where the audience is going, not just categorically on products or platforms. You know, kind of the classic example of this would be virtual reality. You know, six or eight years ago, almost everyone was chasing it with a fun and the timing wasn't right. And Shanti and I knew that and we didn't invest in it. We are investing in VR now, which I think is interesting. It feels like when three people are doing a lot of the same. So we very much focus on getting the timing right, which means you have to understand the audience. Their differentiator is we're ecosystem-oriented fund. That's partly why I, you know, I'm so thankful to be on this podcast today with Joachim. You know, we think gaming is incredibly hard. Building great games is, is it's a work of passion. It's a work of skill, but it's also a little bit of luck. We think in order to you know make luck happen, it's really helpful to have a network of folks supporting you more than just your investors if you're the founder. So for us, we have limited partners. That means investors in our fund who are gaming strategics, who we've purposefully chosen to bring know-how or potentially commercial partnerships or in a best case scenario, an exit to our portfolio companies. We have a very strong founders network, which we're increasingly trying to activate and you know, provide cross-lateral support to one another, which which early efforts in that in that push have been very helpful. We have an exceptional advisor network, which is all used to see levels at some of the largest game companies in the industry. And then we have a network of industry contacts, which I think most people in venture capital have as well. You know, most folks are, are well networked, but we, we really try to activate it and 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 do everything we can to support our founders. Nice. Yeah, there's so much good there that I, I definitely believe the the operator investor model is very beneficial because then you've seen those situations and you can give that advice and be supportive. I, th- I wanted to dive deeper into your thoughts about transitioning from an operator to an investor. Why do you think it was the right thing to do for you? It's a great question. I think given you've made a similar transition yourself, I'd, I'd love to to hear your side of this as well. But for me, one of, my, one of the things I really focus on, one of the things I think is a unique capability is being good at recognizing trends and patterns and trying to move towards it. There was a great speech I heard, I think it was over 10 years ago by one of the first, by the first female partner at the Mayfield Fund. And it was an all women's networking event. And I was brought there by a friend and I was the only guy in the room. And I was sitting there and, you know, just trying to understand and learn and participate but really listen and this partner uh, who unfortunately i forgot the name of she said something very insightful which was when you see something big about to take off and you believe in your heart of hearts that it's going to be something that changes the world the best thing you can do is go there early and learn because learning when 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 an initiative or a disruption is early in its life cycle is costless and the knowledge you accumulate is priceless because you'll have accumulated knowledge that other people that come into the category will have to learn at a much higher expense. And that that 
taught me a lot about the importance of seeing trends, seeing patterns, and going towards it. But as an operator, I also realized and learned that each person kind of has their unique skill, capability, and passion. And when you bring those three things together inside the right context, they inherently are predisposed predisposed towards success. In other words, if what you're good at, your role, and the company sponsoring you are all aligned, then you will significantly increase your chance of success. And for me, what I realized is I'm very good at seeing the trends and helping things inflect. Like when I joined Kabam, for example, which is perhaps what I'm best known for as an operator, it was a 30-person company, two million in revenue. I was the first gaming hire. They were pivoting into game. You know, fast forward four and a half years, 900-person company with over a billion dollars, 400 million in revenue. And we had just greenlit Marvel Contest of Champions, which was a game that no one thought would really be as successful as it was. There were a lot of doubters even within the company. A lot of good people had to work hard to make it successful, but that was a far cry from the original Kingdoms of Camelot, which had interns at an art college doing all the art. So that that's where I'm strongest, you know, that inflection. And that's where I feel like they, for mature categories of gaming, I'm not the best guy. It's just not something I'm passionate about. I, I'm not excited about managing to quarterly revenue targets that, that don't encompass triple digit growth rates. Like it, that's just not me. So what's cool about being an investor is you're seeking out companies that are looking to grow like that. And so being able to, you know, at, at arm's length, bring that background, that experience and help support people on their own journey. That That's turned out to be in abstract what I feel like I can add the most value to the industry today. And then also I would say that there's something refined by just looking at the opportunity of becoming a venture capitalist. And Yogi, this, this may be something that since you went down this path before me, you realized earlier, but you know, gaming venture has matured to such an extent that it is the way by which gaming operates. So if you don't mind, I'll kind of dig into that a little bit more. So yeah, please do. Know, for, for me, like, you know, I like to do a lot of analysis myself. I like to try to frame things before I, I have a strong view on it. And when I first joined Transcend, I knew Shanti was doing incredible things. The portfolio was already outperforming expectations, great number of early investments. But in order to stand up the second fund and really pitch it with sincerity, I needed to believe that investing in games was the right thing for investors. You know, in other words, we treat our funds money like it's our own money. And we are very conscientious of, of how we manage it. And so I spent like two weeks just going through PitchBook, which is a data repository of transaction information for gaming and beyond. It, it covers basically all private money transactions. And what I learned from that were a few things. One, I, I, I learned perhaps to my surprise and perhaps the surprise of many that despite how much gaming valuations had gone up during COVID, the gaming industry was actually not mispriced. You know, certainly public company valuations have come down since COVID has, COVID has dissipated and, and hopefully won't come back. But the overall scale of the change wasn't indicative of a bubble, which is to say that like public company valuations have grown with gaming as a service. Gaming as a service 10 years ago was about 20% of company revenues. Now it's closer to 80%. And you can see that there's a linear relationship between gaming as a service as a percentage of company valuation, public company gaming valuation, and, and I, I guess the period evaluation, which is to say that like gaming companies today are, are, are fairly representing the value of gaming as a service, this long-lived relationship that gaming developers and publishers have with their consumers. So that was the first thing that gaming was fairly wide. The second thing was that super, super majority of the biggest franchises ever produced in gaming were produced by 
private companies. And this goes back to the 80s, like as far back as the data set goes within PitchBook. So like Infinity Ward created Call of Duty. They were an angel-backed company before they were acquired by Activision. And only recently have we really started to see companies like Roblox, uh, you know, which in contrast had multiple, multiple rounds of investments before they went public, right? As one of the biggest gaming platforms in the world. That gradual evolution from a bunch of friends and family helping a, a, a group of gaming entrepreneurs stand up a business and then being acquired to now this, hey, you can be private and eventually go public as a game company. It's really kind of astounding, but it, it's a logical and gradual evolution. And then the third point was, and it, it, it kind of mirrors the second point, but it, it's, it's, it's more poignant today, which is that innovation in gaming is outsourced to the private market, which is to say that, yes, the private markets have matured and there's more funding to get you further along in your business. But the big companies, these, and this goes back to the first point as well, these gaming as a service public companies, you know, you're... EAs, your, your Activisions, which I guess is now Microsoft, your Embracers, they use M&A to bring innovation that is proven at scale into their business. And conversely, they rely upon entrepreneurs, founders to chase their dreams, to chase their passions and build the next big thing. And there's a healthy progression from being a founder to being a VC-backed founder to being potentially a project-financed uh, business, or you could raise more capital from more VCs to eventually having an exit or going public. And so the, all those points, you know, covered a few things like seeing trends and patterns, seeing how the industry has matured, seeing that, that the gaming industry, even with COVID, was largely in equilibrium. It helped me realize that venture investing is actually the best way to drive in, in innovation in the industry. And relative to things that I'm excited about and where I've had the most personal success and experience, it was almost a, a perfect uh, through line. Uh, so I feel very lucky that Shanti kind of reached out to me and said, hey, you should really look at this venture thing. You might you might enjoy it because I, I'm finding I do. Nice. Yeah, that's like, I, I want to see more big companies actually turn up versus like not too much M&A at the early stage. In Finland, for instance, there's been in the last decade, I would say like 10 different big acquisitions, but it's been really hard. We only have Rovio that is independent in Finland out of the big companies. Most of them been acquired versus going public. What are your thoughts on like evolving that or does it need to evolve? Does it matter? I think it does. I actually just published a, a piece on this a little while back on LinkedIn in our blog. When Shanti and I were working together at GRI as operators, I was pushing a cross-platform strategy. This was 2015. It was before Fortnite. And I remember a lot of people just didn't see it. They didn't believe in it. It was perhaps too early. But my thought process around it was, you know, the audience for games, specifically younger millennials and Gen Z, they don't view platforms the way that Gen X does. And what, what I mean there is they want to play a game like Fortnite and they will use whatever devices is closest to them to get to it, right? It's not like they're going to move down the hall to load their Xbox or their PlayStation or go to their bedroom to launch their PC. If the phone is right next to them, they're going to play it. And there really won't be a discernible impact on their gameplay because they're device agnostic. And that core understanding around the audience, which was informed by market research, led me to conclude that franchises that were cross-platform 
would become incredibly valuable, right? And since then, that thought process has evolved to realizing that in the land grab for franchises, there are really kind of three levels of competition in what I kind of call Katamari Royale. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the, the, the hybrid franchise that I'm kind of composing there, it's Katamari Damacy, which is a really fun, kind of very Japanese game from Nemco Bandai, where you're a little ball and you roll up stuff in the world and you complete a level when you've rolled everything up and, and hit a certain score, if I remember correctly. And then the other one, of course, is any of the Battle Royale games, let's say Fortnite. And gaming right now is going through its own Katamari process. There's consolidation happening and it's happening at a publisher level, you know, to draw on a European influence or a point to Embracer. I think they've done an incredible job using their their very successful IPO and a number of different sources of capital to bring a number of different companies together. You know, there's still a lot of work to do on the integration and operation side of things, but the ambition is, is correct. Then there's the platform level where I think Microsoft might have a slight lead right now with the Activision Blizzard announcement. And then before that, the Bethesda announcement, you know, the platform level is just consolidating IP, bringing studios internal, uh, really to power subscription offerings, right? Like Game Pass. And then there's an ecosystem level, which is even above that, which I think speaks to business models and devices. And, uh, you know, it's perhaps the closest thing we can, we could say would be the, the metaverse. We, we prefer to refer to the metaverse as more of a multiverse, but there it's really a battle between centralization and decentralization. And which all of which is to say, getting back to your question, that there's just incredible push for consolidation right now. But, you know, I think just to kind of frame things a little bit on maybe founders should have more hope, more ambition. You know, the, the private markets have more capital than they've ever had before. There's more support for innovation than ever. But most importantly, the audience is bigger than it's ever been, right? Like gaming for Gen Z is an activity that 75 to 80% of them do, right? For Gen X, it's closer to like 30 to 40%. And that's really just Western countries, right? Like Europe, North America. If you zoom out on the world and you start to think about emerging markets, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, India, China, like there are enormous countries that are moving down this curve so quickly. And also, you know, I kind of stumbled into the stat just by trying to frame how big does gaming get? You know, 30% of the world today was born before gaming was invented, which is to say that like, Members of the silent generation are not playing, you know, the new PlayStation 5. So just by working through the changes in demographics, right, over the next 20 years, gaming is going to grow three to five X. So I share, I share your passion, you know, like, I think this category is enormous. It is only getting bigger. And on a demographics basis alone, we're talking huge, huge growth. Yeah. That's not even taking into account innovation. I think founders should be hungry. They should be passionate. They should be fearless. I think consolidation is going to happen. Uh, it's happening at those three levels. I think any chance that people have to push and grow, they should. I, I think one of your sub points, your question had a lot of nuance to it. Hopefully I'm not going too deep, too long. But right now, a lot of the, the drivers of consolidation do not reflect the global diversity of game development and talent, but more specifically the audiences themselves. And I, I, I do think we need to see more of that. I, I would love to see more European companies operating at, at the, the scale that we're talking about. I, I, I think the talent is certainly there. I'd love to see more 
companies rise in Africa, you know, as well. India, I think that's starting to happen. So I think there's great potential on all those fronts. Yeah, for sure. It isn't like something that happened in the recent years, but at least for me, when thinking about market size and like gaming audience who are playing games, I think the definition of consuming a game is changing so much to encompass all sorts of video format gaming where you're just watching gameplay on YouTube. And that that's the, the generation that we're, we're moving towards who are going to be the consumers of this IP that games industry is creating. So it's, it is definitely amazing times. Yeah, indeed. Out of curiosity, you know, there are, it does feel like there are these regional differences on, um, on how big companies push to grow before they have an exit or I guess how much they fundraise, things like that. Are you starting to see that change in, in the areas that you're focused on? Like I'm not seeing founders come to me and pitch Embracer. <laughs> like that's, that doesn't come in. Like I, I'd, I'd really love to hear more like that because I think they're on to something different, at least that doesn't come up that often. Just, you know, thinking about like, hey, that's that's actually massive out of the, like out of the, hey, this is where we're gunning for versus like, oh yeah, we have this game in soft launch, this casual mobile title. I think there's a vast difference in pitching those. And I'm, I'm kind of fascinated in like, if, if somebody would come and pitch me the embracer, like what is behind their thought pattern there? Could they make it work? They're not going to be building the embracer that is existing now. It's going to look different. Right. So like very fascinating stuff. Yeah, I agree with you on that. There, there is a difference between pitching a project and pitching a company, I would say. Yeah. I, 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 that's one thing I've definitely seen manifest in, in, in the pitches we've received. It's different than being an operator where you can kind of, more explicitly or implicitly articulate what good looks like for a green light pitch, right? But with venture, there's definitely a lot of pro appeals for project financing. And I don't know how you feel about this, but in my mind, project financing is very important. It is one of the key drivers of innovation in gaming, but it, it has very different success criteria than venture investing. But it, it's, I've seen that happening a lot, the project financing side of things. And I, I think it's, it's hard for games where you are definitely going to kill the game quite quickly, like if it doesn't show progress or and then, then structuring a deal that takes all of those considerations into place makes it very hard for project financing to, to eventually be a model that makes sense for a financier. But yeah, yeah, I think there's... Absolutely. More generally speaking, I think folks that are looking for project financing, they'll see the most success talking to like, gaming publishers about or, or even platforms about getting the capital they need to build the game but i think to your to the point of your question like the one thing that i can probably share is that you know for founders that want to be in the business of games that don't see that as being like a singular effort over their careers there's no reason why you, you couldn't raise at a company level right so in other words like it's a very subtle tweak but if you shift the orientation from we're going to build the best project to we're going to build the best team for building games, then it starts to move into the space of being a VC, an investment that a VC can back. Because ultimately, the skill set, the experience, the unique value proposition of the team is what allows it to scale and become something more durable. At least that's my view. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Talking about the things that are sort of fixed in gaming, like you 
and me both have seen new platforms like there was the Facebook canvas was sort of the the, the social gaming uh, era 15 years ago and that went to mobile 10 years ago and now we're going into web3 and what do you think are sort of those things in gaming that are very solid and and they won't change that much for web3 as well versus the things that are have evolved over the days of making games that's a good question maybe i'll just do like compare and contrast on remain and change because you know, kind of metaphorically, you know, I feel like everyone has their own superpower, but oftentimes their superpower also is their weakness. <laughs> so I think I think it, it kind of fits here. Like one thing that's remained for sure is that in gaming, fun conquers all, right? That remains the same, has not changed. However, I think where a lot of gaming industry folks really get tripped up is the definition of fun has definitely changed. And it's changed with gaming use cases, right? And you, you touched on this when you talked about like, people watching gaming or or even if we look inside of gaming as a service like you know um idle games versus active games right the gaming use case is really an intersection of platform and the context by which somebody is using that platform for games so if you're on your mobile phone on a subway it's very different than being in front of your pc in your bedroom right avoiding doing homework the hardware power is different the focus is different. What you, by definition, will accept as fun is different. Um, so I, I think that's one example of remain and change. I think another thing that's remained for sure is that gaming has been and continues to be the driver of mass market adoption for new technology, whether it was 3D graphics, broadband, digital distribution, synchronous experiences like MMOs or even like recording podcasts on Zoom, microtransactions, you know, gaming really has been at the forefront of consumer adoption on a lot of things. I would say the contrast to that is that we're starting to get to a point where the scale of change we're talking about is a little bit contingent on generational maturation, which is to say that digitally native generations are going to view the world very differently than every generation prior. Right. Like, and this is why I think there's such polarization around the concept of Web3. You know, for us, we view Web3 as a set of tools, systems, and technologies which can be invoked in whole or in part to support a use case driven gameplay experience, which is to say that we do not believe Web3 is just this notion of a token launch and NFTs. That's not, it's not about PFPs. It's more than that. And when you talk to people that are Gen Z, which is really the first truly digitally native generation, what you're seeing is they grew up with digital goods and they view them as being 100% equivalent to physical goods. It's a notion that I can't even really grok as a Gen X person, but I understand it as an investor, as, a, as someone that thinks about the creation of product. And so I guess those are just two examples I'd say of, of ways where things have remained and changed. And, um, there, there are certainly others, but that'd be my quick answer. Yeah, something that I believe will will stay would be great to hear what you think about this. But like the Web three will also have return on ad spend as a KPI quite soon, because I think like you're gonna see more and more competition in that space where people are marketing driven, and there's similar dynamics that will be in place eventually. What do you think? Like, is that is that something that 
developers could already utilize if they're early? Like, is there opportunities? And what do you think about like the whole situation in free to play where the competition is so tough regarding user acquisition? Yeah, this is a good corollary to what I was talking about before with the franchises rising above the platforms and, and really becoming, for now at least on mature platforms, the, the nexus of value. One of the things I believe very strongly is every street lifecycle platform lifecycle goes through, and this is a business school concept that I think a lot of folks who have studied business have come across, you know, this product or industry lifecycle, early stage growth. Innovation, early stage growth, late stage growth, maturity and decline. That That is indeed the physics of business. It applies to gaming as well. My corollary to it though, my, my addendum to it is that there are different functions that excel at different stages of the life cycle. And I've actively curated my operating career around this and also our investments are transcend. But during the innovation phase, you have to be an engineer. You absolutely have to be an engineer. And that's because a lot of the things that are being sorted out are inherently technical. They require someone who can build it, test it, and throw it away, and then try something new. In early stage late growth, you start to see business people, product managers become more relevant. At maturity, it's marketers and brand that becomes important. And then in decline, you know, it's about managing costs. So it's kind of more the, the hardcore operations folks. And with a lot of gaming companies, they're at maturity. And so by extension off that framework, brand is what matters. And brand is indeed what helps you avoid uh, or at least reduce the unit cost of your marketing investment. In other words, brand gives you additional organic that reduces your overall you know, weighted average acquisition cost. And... So I don't think user acquisition costs are going away. I am 100% with you, Joachim, that it's going to get applied to Web3 super fast. I, I think it will be applied in a different way. I think Web3 is still early. The tools are developed, but not the go-to-market. That needs to be ironed out before we can really spend against it, I think. But I, I do think the most successful companies will be spending on UA with a mind to create franchise that can then defer marketing content, marketing expense on future products, whether they be on new platforms or on the same platform in new game or simply extensions of the existing game. I think on novel platforms like Web3, there's much more opportunity for just innovation to unlock massive opportunity, right? I, I view Axie Infinity by Sky Mavis as being a great example of that. No one thought that, that game could be as big as it has become. And, um, you know, it's once again a reminder that the lens that you use to govern green lighting decisions or even project investments on a mature platform are very different and in many ways opposed to the best filter or lens you'd use on a new platform. So yeah, I think UA is, is here. It's here to stay, just like marketing has. I think it's important changes over the industry lifecycle. It's less important early on, but at the end of the day, everyone should be getting to build new franchises based on innovation. Let's switch gears here and, and talk about the investor work that we're both spending our times on. I, I'm going to share my own thoughts after I hear what you say. <laughs> but like, of Please. course, question for this was, what has been hard about being an investor? Dude, I, I'm excited to hear your answer to this too. So the hardest thing for me is actually saying no. It is the hardest thing. Partly because 
you know, me coming into investing is it's a different agenda. Like um, I've had the good fortune as an operator to be in a position not to work, and me coming into being an investor squarely focused on being a part of the flow. Right? Like being connected to people that are passionate, excited about doing the next big thing, and supporting them. And more generally, just trying to be a, a positive actor in the ecosystem, trying to give back. Right, I, I feel very lucky and fortunate. There are a ton of talented, passionate teams out there, and we can't invest in all of them as a fund. And you know, unfortunately, not all of them will receive funding from an investor. Saying no can be difficult. When we do say no, though, we, we try to be as helpful as we can. Like we'll make introductions to other venture and investors, other angels, or we'll just give them feedback on, on and we'll try our best. We can't do it for everyone, but we try our best to give feedback on, on what they could pursue this and present differently to unlock capital. We do say no more than yes. I think that's just our approach. It's our style. That is partly because we think that going back to one of your earlier questions, that venture funds should be more than capital. You know, we're really looking for a partnership where we can provide a service that helps founders. And it, sometimes we're not the, the right fit. We're not the right partner for them. And so we'll say no. But Joachim, what would you say? What's been the hardest thing for you as an investor? A uh, thing that I definitely want to improve is like, how do I get founders that I work with to take holidays and then, like, you know, <laughs> time off? Like, because that that doesn't come up at all in a discussion like that I'm having with founders because nobody's taking holidays, it seems, <laughs> which is terrible. Because yeah, because I think like that's one of the best productivity hacks is to actually take time off and to come back and like, yeah, you know, you're more fully into it again, but it's just, you know, you have, an, have a conversation with a founder who you're involved with after investment and they're pushing hard. They want to get some KPIs coming in. But like, when do you, when do you mention to them that, Hey, have, when did you last take a, a break? take some time off like week two weeks like it'll just help the company so much if you take this time off but it just doesn't yeah. come up naturally so that's the problem that's hard that's a good insight yeah I, I i do think mental health generally speaking has been such a challenge for the gaming industry right like it goes back to the early labor disputes between employees let's say at electronic arts and, and management and I, I share your view i mean just looking back on my offer there's definitely moments in time when I was imbalanced. I was working too hard. I had too much stress. I was being pushed to grow too fast. You know, there are the folks that were supporting me at that time. Well, a couple of things. One, it was good that most everyone would just tell me when I was imbalanced. Uh, and then the second thing was, you know, I had the fortune of having coaches come in. You know, I, I, I actually, sometimes a lot of the stress just comes from not having the tools or the experience to manage some new opportunity or challenge in, in the most effective way. But then also just, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, maybe more cute with Gen X, certainly with high growth categories like Web3 or even super mature categories like console game development. You know, when you're in this period of crunch time, it's almost impossible to see anything but, you know, Jira tickets or just a backlog of emails that you have to power through. I've definitely seen when people get too much stress or pressed too hard, they lose the ability to be creative, to think uh, orthogonally. And uh, sometimes that's really what you need. So yeah, this notion of productivity, I think in game, it's been mischaracterized for a while, but I, I share your sentiment. I think people, uh, it needs to be reframed and, and mental health is an input into 
the best productivity. I wanted to talk about the founder ambition a bit. How much does it really matter for you as an investor when you're hearing a founder pitch and what their ambition level is like? You see that they're, they're a person that should be building stuff that they, they definitely are an entrepreneur. Like, do you want to cultivate that ambition more or do you be sort of like hands off regarding their ambition? Dude, that's a good question. So maybe this just reflects the limits of my own ability, but like I found as an operator that I could not durably change who someone was, right? Like you can motivate and inspire people to push harder, to think different, but when you leave, they'll eventually revert to being who they are. And that's good, right? That's, that's yeah. everyone should be themselves. Uh, and so through learning by doing, you know, hiring a lot of folks, I probably hired directly and directly like 1,500, 2,000 people over my career, like came to this realization. It actually connects to your last two questions really nicely, like that people that are truly, truly motivated to do something different will do anything within their power to do something grand or different. You know, they tend to, they tend to have, there tends to be a catalyst for why they want to do that, which is another way of saying, Joachim, you and I could go to the Caribbean, get a job working at a bar and have a pretty awesome life, right? Like live in a great location, beautiful environment, have just enough to survive. There's a reason why we chose the paths we chose, right? And there's a reason why other people choose the paths they, they chose, you know, whether they're more successful or not, somewhat irrelevant. So in other words, there's always a reason why people push hard. And I believe that very strongly. And I, I, I look for people that understand that deeply, not the simple answer of, I like to work hard. I think that's a horrible answer. It's too topical. You don't understand yourself. But really, what drives you? What motivates you? And then I looked very, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, but like, what's your unique superpower? Like, people often talk about what they're good at. It's irrelevant. It has to be what are you good at relative to your peers, relative to everyone else that wants to be in the business of gaming? What makes you special? And then I think the last point to your mental health question is perhaps the most important one is like when you leave work and you're happy, what happened? When you leave work and you're bummed, like what happened? And for people, that can pull their intrinsic motivator, their unique power, and what makes them happy together into something that they pursue, whether it's a job at a big big company or working for government or creating their own business, those people will be successful. I believe it deep in my heart. It just takes time. And so I look for people like that. We, we, we filter hard on that. We try, to, try not to change things. Now, that said, sometimes the most important thing you can do as an investor is to share context. And I think this is true for managers as well. Share context that might be outside the view of the, of the individual that you're speaking with, so that their heuristics for the world, their intrinsic motivators, their passions can situate themselves relative to what might be a global maxima as opposed to a local maxima. Uh, and we do spend a lot of time on that, sharing context, sharing knowledge, addressing questions. We try to help there. And then, you know, I think as an extension of that, purely from an investment standpoint, we try to think very carefully about category size, opportunity, industry rivalry, things like that. People have different philosophies on this. Some people think that their success is 100% theirs. I, I don't view that. <laughs> I don't share that view. I, I think that a lot of luck goes into life. At least I feel that in my case. So we, we define luck as things being just outside your control, you know, and there is a way to construct luck 
to unlock opportunity. And we, and we look for people that aren't oriented in that way. They tend to find luck. Yeah. What, what do you what do you think what, what are your views yeah i'm constantly evolving have you read jim collins books good to great and built the yeah. last and the, it's so, one of my favorites yeah they they're really amazing books i just reread both of them and now i'm going to the great by choice the level five leader concept that he has is i think something that i'm looking for founders that I can see somebody having the potential for that and then sharing that hey there's this book have you read it oh you haven't maybe you could check it out and then we can have a discussion like trying to bring it up and make them realize their own potential for being an amazing founder because the the concept that Jim Collins has that you don't need to be a charismatic leader a visionary leader you need to be a leader who builds a visionary company. Like those concepts really resonate with me. I think I like being around founders who don't think that the world revolves around them, but rather that they want to build a company <laughs> that is sort of has something going for it. So I think that's that's my thoughts. I, I do. I, I, I'm very much aligned with you. Yeah, I've actually given out that book. I've given out good to great teams I've worked with in the past to try to reset you know anchor bias and all that and i i do think the level five leader is a great that, that's a really great way to um kind of quantify what you're looking for I, I i do think i don't know if you, you share this for you i feel like in venture maybe it's just maybe it's cut by people that have operating backgrounds or not but i feel like creators are more likely to filter the way you and i are discussing right like is there atomic quality within the founding team or the founder that suggests that they can build this thing right where uh perhaps financial investors are more oriented on the visible attributes of what a leader should look like you know like perhaps to stereotype i'll say this because i'm american you know the american stereotype of the loud gregarious visionary who's pushing the team i have found in my experience that those people are usually not the ones that believe <laughs> so that's yeah. that's yeah. my personal view. yeah i i have a view to this that i think because it's so hard to to do startups you want to have some idea of hey this is actually this is the the better way statistically because jim collins compares two companies that were founded at the same time or were good at the same time but the other one became great and he really points out that those people focused so much on building the company and not their own personal brand they focused on succession planning for who's going to be the next CEO of the company. And the, there's just so much good there that when, you, when you've gone through all the hardship in, in being an operator, I think you can relate to that. There's, he has a concept called like time tellers versus clock builders, where the time teller is you know, that visionary leader but then the, the clock builder is the person who doesn't make a noise out of him, out about himself or anything. So, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I share your view. Yeah. Hey, Andrew, before we go to the final questions that I usually always ask, I wanted to ask you one more question about like working with founders. How should like hard, hardworking founders talk about doing that lifestyle shift when they're pushing hard? How could we su- support them take that time off? It's a great question, complicated by where we are in the world, going back to work, right? Like yeah. this whole post-COVID period. You know, the 
uh, you know, I have to probably disclose my personal predispositions. You know, I'm very much a what and why guy, which is to say that I care much more about the result and why the result matters than how or when. I certainly think when is the least important unless you're running on a budget or something like that. Um, the how only matters if it is not logically connected to the what, in other words. But, you know, like I think in this world of everyone working remotely with Zoom, you know, it's it's hard to get alignment on what the what should be, right? Like I know some people who are on Zoom calls 16 hours a day back to back, you know, barely with time for bio breaks. That doesn't feel good, <laughs> right? <laughs> they may be delivering their results, but that's not going to last long. And I would argue the great resignation is in part because we haven't figured out how to manage mental health in this new remote work world, right? Where the default assumption is that people are not doing their job. And it's amplified by the fact that for non-Gen Z generation, not having that personal connection reduces empathy. You know, I think, you know, put another way, like being able to spend time with someone, share a coffee, even talk about the weekend or the weather, you know, it, it builds understanding and, and connection. We may have lost that, or some of us may have lost that. Yeah, I, I think I, you know, I don't know if I have an excellent answer for this. I think it's a, a complex case-specific question, but it does feel like perhaps the investors or the board, the people that are working around and in support of the founders should care and be actively testing it. And by extension, you know, I would ask the, the founders and, and the management think about it as well, right? Like thinking about that next level qualitative quality of just overall productivity, durable productivity. Yeah, I think it's like caring for the founders' well-being is something that, at least for yeah. myself, because I'm not sure. fit enough. Do you, do you have any tactics that you've been using? I'm, I'm a big fan of this deep work thing from Cal Newport, where he has this time block planning system where you block time up from the day for certain activity, which means that you might be, you know, answering emails from 1 to 2 p.m. and you don't answer emails and at any other hour of the day. I think it it creates a interesting setup where you're not doing context switching because you're sort of like what you're doing is the environment you are in. So if you're having like several activities going on at the same time, writing an email, but you're also taking care of Slack messages at the same time. It creates a lot of burden. When I started doing that time block last year, it really changed how I feel about my work days. That is a great, that is a great finding. I'll have to dig into that. Yeah, pretty useful. Hey, Andrew, final questions for you. What's your favorite book and why? Good question. It's been a while since I've thought about it, but the book that comes to mind right now would be probably The Fountainhead. Ayn Rand. The reason why I've always liked that is because, you know, the core of the book is this dichotomy between architects, one who young, who's kind of battling against conventional standards and refuses to compromise. And then the other, which kind of goes with what's popular, but relies upon the other person for innovation and ideas and it's an interesting one to bring up in this context as i think about it because it those archetypes exist in gaming for sure yeah. <laughs> for sure but you know it's it's an interesting duality because people kind of immediately group themselves into one of those two camps and almost everyone thinks that they're the 
young creative architect, <laughs> even when they're yeah. not, but both are actually required for the industry to be successful. And, and so it really should be viewed as more of, of a collaboration. And perhaps this is where I, I like some of the ethos, at least the early ethos for Web3, where, you know, if it shifts from being a, an orientation of competition to one of collaboration, you know, perhaps there's more we can accomplish together. So yeah, I think that that book, the passion of the architects, the inherent intellectual rigor and creativity of what they're producing, there's just a lot of strong metaphors, I think, that carry over to gaming. You have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today. Yeah, you know, it's probably a subject for a different type of podcast, but I would say that there are two events in my life that have significantly shaped who I am, and it always changes. But the first was the loss of my mother when I was very young, when I was eight. You know, I think that for me, that created an incredible sense of urgency around life. You know, seeing someone lose their life outside their control at 35, I think it changes your perspective substantially. You know, perhaps to translate it into a pop culture metaphor, like I'm not a huge Eminem fan, but like his song, Lose Yourself. You know, I think that that's very popular and the lyrics resonate with a lot of folks. Like, I don't think you can really understand that until you have lost something, which I think is his story as well, right? In eight mile. But that what I learned over time is that the loss of my mother was, it both empowered me and gave me agency, but it also limited me. And the second event that I think has changed me more than perhaps the first is probably my daughter having my daughter my wife and i were very fortunate we worked for years to try to have a child we got very lucky and every day i do block time to spend with her and, and to be present and to really revel, revel in the amazing thing that is watching someone grow up and discover things for the very first time and so i would say it's those two events that shape yeah. my work amazing stories final question andrew what's the best way for founders in the audience to reach out to you? I think for meeting folks for the first time, I think LinkedIn is just very expedient. You know, usually the next action on someone reaching us is to look up their LinkedIn profile. So founders, please, you know, build that LinkedIn profile. It, it's relevant. Even if you're Gen Z and you don't believe in it, you know, it's really helpful. And, you know, please feel free to reach out to me, Shanti Burgle, Brett Krauss, any of the Transcend team members are always excited to meet new folks and, and to try to be helpful if we can. Hey, Andrew, this was such an amazing discussion. So happy we did it. We could have oh. gone for a few hours more, but let's do another one soon. Thanks, buddy. I, I really enjoyed the opportunity and love everything that you're doing for the industry, both with this podcast and your investments. I, I just think you're such a positive catalyst. And so, yeah, I appreciated the time. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for the, the kind words. Take care, man. See you. All right. Bye-bye. If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please go and check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter on what's happening in gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.